You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Buggy, Schmarls, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again the Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I'd like you to imagine that you're a teenager again. If you're actually a teenager right now, and I know we have a few of you that listen, you don't have to imagine, but for the rest of us, I'd like to return to a time when the future was still full of possibility. When you still had hope. When the wheel of the world was not yet grinding you down to dust. When the ever-present terror of existential dread had not yet settled onto your soul. Personally, I'm imagining myself at 16. Staying out late, getting into trouble, finding secluded little spots where you and your friends could sneak away to do tons of, uh, uh, homework. But mostly it's that big, open world still so full of possibilities. You had no idea what was waiting for you out there, no limitations to what you could do, what you would do. And it wasn't for ambition's sake or money or power, it was for a lust of adventure, for experience. I want to try to put you there for a bit because at this moment in our story, In the spring and summer of 1696, there are a lot of very important 16-year-olds running around merry old England and sailing the high seas. This is episode 237, The King of Madagascar. One of those 16-year-olds, of whom we can be pretty certain, and who we know was 16 at the time, was a young man named Woods Rogers. Woods was living in Bristol in 1696 and still attending school at 16, which was a bit out of the ordinary. Most boys who went to school would have been done by 16 unless they had aspirations as a 
scholar, or to serve in the church. Most 16-year-olds would have joined the family business by that point, but Woods Rogers' father was a very successful merchant. He owned dozens of ships that were kind of split into two fleets. There was a large fishing fleet and a large trading fleet. And he wanted to see his son rise high in the world. So he made sure that Woods Rogers got a, a thorough education. You know, he learned all the basics, your reading, writing, arithmetic, but he also learned the rudiments of things like history and philosophy, of literature and Latin and the law. It was the sort of liberal education that was all the rage for the elite in places like London or Paris, but it was necessary for anyone who had a mind to enter either the legal or political fields. Which is to say Woods Rogers was pretty well educated by 16. But the following year, 1697, when he was 17, he was going to go to sea. He was going to begin his apprenticeship, and 17 is pretty late in the game to begin your apprenticeship at sea. Most boys did so by, at the latest, the age of about 14. This was an eight-year apprenticeship, traditionally speaking. And they learned all of the basics of sailing, you know, the rigging, tying knots, that kind of thing, but anybody who wanted to be considered for even the most minor of respectable jobs at sea had to have this experience under their belt. And that was Woods Rogers' career path. That's where all the good jobs were. You know, we've talked about boots before. A lot of great pirate costumes have to include a pair of thigh-high leather boots, though, turned down at the knee. You know, look at any pirate in any media. They've all got those high leather boots, but no pirate actually wore those at sea, nor did any respectable naval officer. Those boots don't give a good grip on board a ship at sea. You'd slide all over the deck and probably fall over or maybe get swept away into the ocean. They're popular, though, in pirate costumes. The reason that Jack Sparrow wears a pair of high leather boots is because they were a conceit of the naval officer class. It was a fashion statement that naval officers had, in society, replaced, in social standing, the cavalry. You know, in days past, it had been cavalrymen that showed up to dinner parties with fancy coats and really big, ridiculous hats and wearing their swords, and every single one of them wore those thigh-high leather boots. And they did so for the cavalry because they were tall enough to serve as, you know, chaps for riding their horses, but naval officers didn't have any particular need to protect their inner thighs while on duty. They had no need for those tall leather boots, but they inhabited the same social space that the cavalry once had, so they wore the same costume. But that was an elite group in England. Anyone who wanted to get anywhere in society in the late 17th century served at sea, usually in the navy. So Woods Rogers, an unusually educated 17-year-old, went to sea. Now, all of those other very important 16-year-olds, important to our story, well, they were certainly already at sea. We don't know nearly as much about any of them as we do about Woods Rogers, but, well, for example, there was a 16-year-old named Benjamin Hornigold, 
who was probably serving on a Navy ship. They were at war, after all. But there was also a 16-year-old Edward Teach somewhere out there on the blue, learning the ropes, literally learning the ropes and getting his sea legs. There was also a 16-year-old Charles Vane somewhere at sea. Now, there were some younger people out there. Bartholomew Roberts and John Rackham were both 14 at the time, probably just setting out. There was an 11-year-old girl named Mary Reed, although she did go by Mark at that time. She had her whole childhood been known as Mark Reed. You know, it might not even be right to call her her, considering our understanding of gender and gender identity these days. You know, we don't know Mary's preferred identity or pronouns or name. It's an interesting aspect of her life. We'll dive into that when we get to her, but we will for now continue to call her Mary Reed. And then there were a bunch of names that were still just kids, really. You know, Steed Bonnet was eight years old. Sam Bellamy was seven. And Bonnie was still not yet born. She was still just a kid when she sailed with the flying gang. But, I mean, take your pick. You could put yourself in any of those shoes, any which might best fit your own experience. I picture myself at 16, young, dumb, and full of, well, you know the saying. But there you are, 1696, living your life, and you begin to hear the stories. At first, it's just rumors and whispers of sailors. Sailors who were working a job for a bunch of puffed-up aristocrats. The mayor of London, the bankers behind the Bank of England. I mean, the king himself was bought in on this mission. And these sailors were getting screwed. Royally screwed, I guess. But what did they do in response? They took it. You took what? They took everything. They took the fastest ship in England. They took all the guns, all the rum, and they took off. For every kid out there that ever wore a Che Guevara t-shirt or put their hair in a mohawk or told their parents, you know, this isn't just a phase, these guys would have been legendary. And maybe those 17th century 16-year-olds weren't super into punk rock, but they were 16. Rebellion was in their blood. And if they worked on a ship every time they stepped out of line they would have gotten a stern talking to. If they screwed up big, they would have faced a lash. At the mast, they would have been whipped and beaten. And every time they endured the humiliation and the pain of that, well, there were those stories. Tales of modern-day Robin Hoods, men who took what they wanted, never once asking for permission or forgiveness. And there, strapped to the mast, crying and bleeding, I can imagine them thinking about the part of that story where those men shot... Their officers in the heart must have been a bit of a comfort. I mean, you can picture a 16-year-old Ed Teach, not yet a blackbeard, probably still had a wispy little mustache, but you can imagine him crying in his hammock while his back was stitching itself together and thinking, you know, I could do it. I could take the ship and sail her to the edge of the world where I could live however I wanted. I imagine a lot of people had these kind of thoughts. You know, was Mary Reed at the age of 11 lying in bed thinking about how unfair her life was, how her mother made her dress up as a boy and pretend to be someone that she wasn't? 
about how she could just escape it all if she could run away with these pirates. We're talking about young people here, but it didn't really matter how old you were or who you were. You know, you could be a fisherman or a wool weaver or a, a courier or anybody. Anybody who had ever felt fed up with their lot in life, those stories would have been intoxicating. You can see why those stories of Henry Every and all of his notorious pirates, why they fueled the publishing industry there in England. Why everybody wanted to read about who they were and what they were doing, but of course, nobody knew who they were or what they were doing. That's why we get stories about a young nobleman from a minor house but a black sheep of the family, running off to claim what's his, or about Henry Avery whisking off a beautiful young maiden away from their life of dull docility to lives of adventure and passion. That's why we get stories about the king of Madagascar. Now, you need to understand just what a hold Madagascar had on the English mind. In parlors and dining rooms all across the English world, men from the East India Company were regaling their wives and children and guests or their hosts or anyone who would listen about this wild, beautiful land. It was huge for a start, bigger than Britain by a wide margin, and it was absolutely filled with the craziest plants and animals you could imagine. They've got these big, fat trees with all of their plumage at the very tippy-top. They've got flowers that came in colors and shapes that you would never find in Europe. There are these giant, I don't know what to call them, bear cats that stalk the brush at night, and these weirdly human little monkeys that have these giant bug eyes. And the birds, I mean, my god. Their plumage is this rainbow that fills the morning sky with color. And to make all of this all the more enticing, no one from outside was allowed on Madagascar. Sure, you could try to land, but the locals would cut off your head if you did. And yet these pirates, these villains, these Robin Hoods of the sea, they lived there. And it was believed by most, or at least a sizable minority, that Henry Every was in fact the king of Madagascar. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. 
It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. You know, all of this uh, hubbub about the global manhunt? No, no, no. That's a smokescreen and obfuscation. Anyone who was in the know would happily tell you that Henry Avery had a castle on Madagascar. He had a beautiful sultan's daughter as his queen and an army of pirates and savages to guard his walls. And the king, the English king, well, he knows all about it. They know exactly where he is, but they can't even get close. The whole Royal Navy could bear down on him, but there's a fleet of a hundred dastardly pirate ships waiting to sink them. All of this about a search for Henry Every, well, that's a cover because the king can't do squat. Oh, and guess who else is there? Tupac and Elvis, you know, it was, it was all nonsense. But it was a persistent rumor, a persistent story. And in a few years' time, it would be written down by Adrian von Broek, who wrote his biography of John Avery, who raised himself from a cabin boy to a king. And it would be even more ensconced when Captain Charles Johnson wrote a similar, if slightly different, story in A General History of the Pirates. But of course it wasn't true. I mean, probably not. Right? I mean, it's ridiculous to think of Henry Every finding a quiet little island somewhere to settle down. Somewhere far from England, somewhere he could build a castle to protect himself should England come knocking. Truth is, though, we don't know what happened to Henry Every. We have some pretty good leads, but who's to say he didn't, at some point, return to Madagascar to build himself a pirate empire? You know, there's no evidence of it. Most of that story was confusing and mashing up the stories of Adam Baldridge and his fort at St. Mary's, of Thomas II and his son with the Queen of the Malagasy, of the very real rape of so many Mughal women on board the Ganji Sawai, and, more than anything, the stories of Abraham Samuel, a man who actually did set himself up as a kind of a king. But it was Henry Avery that served as kind of an amalgamation of all those stories. A figurehead and a marketable commodity to sell newspapers and cheap, trashy books. It's not impossible that Henry Every could have sailed back to Madagascar, but it's also not what happened. We'll explore that myth again when it becomes relevant, but for now I want to look at what we know actually did happen. We left Henry Every when he set foot on the docks of Nassau, at New Providence Island, when he left his ship the Fancy for one last time. When Henry Every left the Fancy in March 1696, he was greeted by three white men at the docks and a host of slaves. The first of those white men was Nicholas Trott, the governor of New Providence Island. Nicholas Trott greeted Henry Every personally, or greeted Benjamin Bridgman, but he welcomed the rest of the crew to Nassau, and then he and Every departed to speak in private. Trot did, though, invite the crew to dine with him later that evening if they were so inclined. The second white man was the lieutenant governor at Nassau, 
and he took the rest of the crew under his wing. He led them off to Nassau to show them the sights. The third was the boatswain of Governor Trott's private ship. He was to take command of the fancy while it was there in port, and all of those slaves were there to do the actual work of unloading the cargo and securing the guns and all of that. That's its own little drama that will play out next time. For now, the crew of the Fancy unloaded all of their private wealth in their sea chests, or, you know, some of them probably in just sacks to carry it all. Now, it was probably actually one of the slaves that belonged to the crew of Fancy that carried their big, heavy piles of money. The pirates themselves would have carried their own cutlass and their musket and their pistols and any other personal effects. This was everything they owned. Remember, these men were nomads. They, well, to call them homeless isn't fair. They had a home, but it was the fancy, and they just left it behind. And I have to wonder what that must have felt like. You know, for over two years, they'd been away from the civilized world. The only towns that they had seen in those two years were unwelcoming places, or even dangerous. But here was an English port town that said it welcomed them in. They had to pay for the privilege of that welcome, but it did happen. I do wonder, though, if they were all a bit on edge for a while. You know, all of them fingering the hilts of their swords as they walked through the streets of Nassau. I imagine for a while none of them ever went out alone. They always traveled in packs, just just in case. You know, there's got to be a certain kind of PTSD after that. Just waiting for the moment when the other shoe dropped, when a regiment of King's regulars would pop up from behind the bar and arrest them all. But they did have some place to stay. The lieutenant governor showed the crew to all of the rooms that had been prepared for them. I imagine that the Wheel of Fortune Inn was given over entirely to the crew of the Fancy along with anywhere else that had a free bed or a pallet or a pile of hay, anywhere they could put a pirate up to sleep, they probably gave over. And if, if you're picturing Nassau here in 1696 as the Nassau in, say, Black Sails, or maybe from Assassin's Creed Four, don't. Those are both reasonable representations of what Nassau may have looked like in 1718, but not in 1696. Nassau was a city on the edge. They were broke. They were under threat from the French, and they didn't have the resources to really build themselves up. These would have been small, relatively ramshackle buildings. You know, the Wheel of Fortune was probably the biggest building in town, and maybe it had two stories, but probably not. Now, of course, all of that will change by the time the Republic of Pirates really gets going. It's, well, it's almost like somebody came along with a huge infusion of cash that gave Nassau a real shot in the arm, economically speaking. Once all of the men were settled, a few did go to join the governor for dinner. It was only seven or eight of the pirates, most of them officers under Henry Every, the kind of people who had to make an appearance. You know, it was all pleasant company and polite conversation, and 
everybody lying through their teeth about who they were and pretending not to know that everybody was lying through their teeth. Not the best time. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew was back at the Wheel of Fortune, enjoying their first taste of a home-cooked meal of a decent mug of ale and of, well, women. And I... I mean, take a second to think about those poor girls working at the Wheel of Fortune Inn. You know, there's this notion that there's a distinction among the women that worked at those kind of establishments. That on the one hand, you've got the cooks and the barmaids and the washerwomen and the singers and the actors, right? And on the other hand, you've got the sex workers, but that's not how it was. If you worked at one of those establishments, you worked. You served drinks, or you cooked food, or you sang, or whatever. But if you worked there, your services were on offer. Unless you were particularly young, or particularly old, or worked in a respectable brothel close to the center of most of the big cities where all of the rich and powerful go, but if you worked in a dockside tavern like the Wheel of Fortune, there was a price for your company. Now that price could fluctuate depending on the customer, right? So most of those pirates would have been washed and shaven and on their best behavior. But there was always a price. And how many women do you think worked at the Wheel of Fortune? Maybe a dozen? Cooking, cleaning, serving drinks, you know. Nassau wasn't a big town. And suddenly there's a hundred men, all new in town and all looking for company. And that word, company, it's kind of a euphemism. Yeah, these men were paying for sex, but it also kind of isn't. You know, these men had been away from home for two years. The only women they'd seen were the beautiful Malagasy women who were happy to offer their company, or the Mughal ladies on board the Ganji Sawai who were not. But not a one of those women spoke English. You know, let's not ignore how many of these men really wanted to snuggle, to, to talk, and probably to cry. They'd been through some stuff. How many of the boys who joined up at 15 or 16 years old to sail with the Spanish expedition, how many of them missed their mothers? How many of the men missed their wives? They were looking for more than just pleasures of the flesh. Although, for the first few days, they were looking for pleasures of the flesh. And those women who worked at the Wheel of Fortune certainly had their hands full. I wouldn't be surprised even to find out that a bunch of the other young women in town, some unmarried, some probably married, but those who didn't work at the inn came in to fill in for the regular staff and walked away with purses full of silver. I'm bringing this all up because it would have been a big deal for the people of Nassau. I mean, think about all of the money that was getting... I'm looking for a better word than pumped. Getting infused into the local economy. Not just for these local women, but for anyone serving drinks or food or, you know, smithy services or, and this is a big one, anyone selling ships and ship supplies. In the following three weeks, the people of Nassau would sell three different ships to the pirates of the fancy. Now, they weren't as big or fast as the fancy. They were smaller craft, the kind that wouldn't attract notice, but they were serviceable, seagoing craft. 
because most of these pirates weren't going to stay here in Nassau. They were going to take those ships and go elsewhere. But some did stay there at Nassau. At least eight and maybe as many as a dozen of those young women who had so much on their plate when the pirates first arrived, well, they found husbands from the crew. Men who had chests full of money and fell in love and decided this was a fine place to settle down. They bought land or a small ship where they could run mostly illegitimate trade in and out of Nassau. And one of them built Nassau's first proper surgery. He was a doctor, the surgeon on board the Fancy. They had kids and they built lives, and most of them got to live those lives unmolested. Next time we're going to take a deeper look at those men, but more than that, we're going to look at the stories of those who chose to leave Nassau. In the following weeks, the men of the Fancy would scatter, into the wind, they would sail all over the world. Some to Carolina, some to Boston, some to Brazil, some certainly to Madagascar. But a select few decided to sail for England. And as for Henry Every, well, no one really knows. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight